Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am happy to be joined today by Tamika Thomas. Hi, Tamika. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's awesome to have you. How's life in Riverside? It's cold in Montana right now. You know, surprisingly, it's overcast here too. It's supposed to burn off and be about 80, but right now it's chilly. Right now, yeah. What? Okay, now give me some perspective. What is chilly for you? <laughs> you know, that's a fair question because anything under 60 as Californians, that's too cold for us. So it's probably about 62 right now. That's cold. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't even know. <laughs> I lived in Iowa for about nine months. And I knew I was a true Californian when I did not even own a jacket. And so we moved in there during the, the like summer going into fall. And I'm like, okay, I could do this. No, I, I'm not. I'm not cut out for the snow, for the negative degree weather. No, that does not register in the Californian brain. <laughs> no, you know, we have, um, you know, we see 105, 107 degree heat, but we've also seen negative 30. And um, it's just, you know, and, and out here, it's like you put on a jacket, a light jacket when it's 32 degrees. You oh put on God. a full jacket when it's zero. And then you're all bundled up and, you know, everything covered when it's below zero. So that's kind of the rule of thumb. Oh my gosh. I, I no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit about Tamika. Tamika is a living forward strategist. She believes God has called her to be a bridge over troubled waters, assisting women transition. Her belief in God is God wants all women to heal, elevate, and become restored. Tamika has spoken at several universities and women empowerment organizations, schools, and churches. She is dedicated to showing how others can turn their trials into treasures so they can move forward. Tamika is the founder and CEO of Tuesday's Healing with Tamika podcast that has over 5.7 thousand downloads, Becoming Fearless, HER University, and the Restored Community, all which focus on showing others how to live a life to inspire and not impress. So that is a lot of things that you've got going on. I'm excited for, excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to be here. So now you're a California girl. Did you grow up in California? I did. I grew up in a town. It's actually the last, you know, whenever people say California, they automatically think LA. So they think of LA or San Diego. So I grew up in a town that's the last town um, in LA County. So not LA, but it's called Pomona, California. It's the last town um, bordering LA County. And growing up in the 80s, um, 
in the dark ages as my kids think they're like is it was it black and white in the 80s and I'm like no (laughs) in the 80s it was rough you know it's when um drugs really hit um our world hard and so I grew up in a very low social economic impoverished area with my parents being only 15 and 16 and they got quickly wrapped up into that drug and gang uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that, about growing up with, with young parents and, and what that lifestyle was like. Yeah. You know, it was really rough. So my dad was uh, like a football star, um, but he was only 16. So I believe he was a junior in high school when I was born. And so he did like a lot of young fathers get to do as he continued to kind of live his life and live his dreams where my mom was 15 and she had to become a mom and she did not have the skills or the um, even resources to be a, a good mother to me. Um, and so instead of her, I guess, seeking help, she suck help from the streets. And so she became involved in drugs. She became involved in games. Um, she, she herself, her family, that was really their culture. So it was a culture of gang and drugs. And, um, quickly after having me, my mom had another child at 16 and then another one at 17. So she had, by the time my mom was 21, she already had five children and, just kind of continued that cycle, but was not, um, she, she was having the children, but she wasn't caring for the children. So the early years of my life, I was in the care of my grandmother that was doing the best that she could because all of her other children, my grandmother's children were also having kids at a very young age. So it was really like a generational cycle of poverty and teen parenting and drugs. And it it was tough. A lot of bad things happened to children in that type of environment. There was a lot of molestation. There was a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, uh, verbal abuse, just a lot of abuse. Because you can imagine, I think of my children and I have a 16 year old and waking her up for breakfast, she screamed, you know, she's upset because it's like, Sleeping is so important to them at that age, but imagine being a mother and having to care for children, but your brain is not even developed. So I have definitely learned not to edit my experiences because I didn't ask for that. So I used to say, well, she was only 16 and she did the best that she could, but it still affected me tremendously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So were you caught up in the abuse and molestation and all that? Yes, I was. So by my mom's, um, her boyfriend, which were my siblings' father, um, three of my sisters have the same father. So their dad was my first abuser. And there was a lot of um, sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse verbal abuse, just, you know, it was a bad place for kids to be in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. So um, was there a time in life where you felt like things got to be a little bit more stable, a little bit more tenable? Um, Was there, was there a change in trajectory somewhere along there? Yeah. So when I was in, I want to say first grade, going into second grade, I was actually hit by a car and um, uh, there's, and I believe it's China, uh, Chinese, the language, the Chinese language, 
there's a symbol that also that for crisis, but it also means opportunity. So I was in a full blown crisis being struck by this car in the hospital um, with them not knowing if I was going to like make it. And as a little girl, and that prompted my dad to get custody of me. So it was literally like the switch of environment because by that time, my dad had went to college. He really had gotten himself stable. And so when he heard about my uh, me being hit by the car, there was this court proceeding that took place and he um, won custody of me. So there was a lot more stability. <clears throat> but I try to explain to people, it's like an animal, you know, um, and not to say that I was an animal, but it's like when you take a, a dog that's been in a, an abused environment and you try to take them into like this loving home, there's a lot of like um, residual things that that dog goes through. You know, there's time that that dog needs to really regulate and become a part of that love, loving right. home. Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of distress. There's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of, and you know, as, as survivors of abuse too, when you get into a stable environment, there's something that pulls you back to that other environment because it's what you know and what yeah. you know seems easier to handle than what you don't know, right? Yes. It's like you're you're uh, swimming against this current and there's this constant like, this is not comfortable. This is uncomfortable, even though it's quote unquote better for you. It's not comfortable. We're very used to, our brain is actually programmed to go towards chaos and negativity because that's easier to right. do things that are are easy are sometimes harder for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. So when was faith introduced into your life? So actually my dad, my grandfather was a, is a pastor. Well, he was, he's um, since um, passed away, but he was a pastor. And so my dad was raised in a home where his father was a pastor. And so although my dad wasn't really living like a quote unquote Christian lifestyle, he definitely introduced God to me and he introduced prayer and having faith. And so through me trying to regulate and him help self-regulating me, um, I learned the power of faith. I learned the power of prayer to get me through really rewriting my mind and, and the, um, because trauma damages your brain and, and you have to do a lot of rewriting. And so faith, I believe was the biggest co-author in me rewriting my life. That's, that's amazing. That's a great way to say that. So talk to me a little bit about the, um, your understanding of what trauma does to the brain. Yeah. So trauma, if you think about like a grass field, right. And it's beautiful and it's green and it's lush. That's how we all enter this world. Like with this, you know, lilies and butterflies floating around. And we have like just this really beautiful green field. What trauma does is it, it creates this dirt path. And so it changes, but like, and, and you can think of like a dirt path, it kind of messes up the beauty of that green lush field. And with trauma, you have several different dirt paths going on in your brain. And so now you really don't have an ability to self-regulate. You don't have an ability to make good choices. You don't have, because there's all these dirt paths that is telling your brain which way to go. And you don't know which one's going to lead you to safety. You don't know which one's going to lead you to danger. So a lot of times you stay stuck and you're just in the middle of this green field with all these options, but you don't know which way to go. Yeah. That's a good illustration. That's a good illustration. Yeah. Trauma just, it rewires our brain and, um, and really 
opens up areas that you never really, really wanted to go down. Yeah, absolutely. And that you weren't supposed to go down, you know, trauma is not normal. Although so many people experience trauma, like, especially, I mean, just secondary trauma, like we, we're experiencing it almost on a daily basis these days, Right, really not normal. We're not supposed to navigate through life that right. way. And I think, I think for people who study trauma to study the adverse effects of trauma on children, specifically um, children are like sponges and it just affects children in such traumatic and dramatic ways that it's, um, it's just almost impossible to quantify, but it really can change the trajectory of, of their lives. And for, because of situations they had no control over. Absolutely. There is, um, the ACEs score, which is the adverse childhood trauma. And it, it literally, um, scores how many traumatic events that you have. And if you have a number, like I can't think of the number, but if you have a high number, and it's actually not even high, it's like really four um, significant things that have happened in your life, you are more susceptible to um, physical diseases, you're more successful, successful to um, divorce and to like all these other things that are connected to childhood trauma. So many of those things that happen, like you said, that we have no control over, but they affect us later on in life. Absolutely. Yeah. I took that test and I, I, I scored quite high in that test. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one of the only tests I scored high in. No, (laughs) but, um, so tell me about when you had your first baby. So I repeated the cycle and I had my first child at 18. Um, but I believe that again, that was one of the greatest opportunities. It was tough. It was hard. But honestly, I did not even know that I was molested until I had my first son, because our brain's number one job, even though there's all this rewiring and all this crazy stuff going on, it, our, our brain's job is to keep us alive. So mm-hmm. my brain had taken that trauma, that molestation and hidden it way back in a file in the back of my head that I did not even know that it was that it existed. But having my first child at 18 opened up that file and allowed me to really process the things that had happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so you kind of had a difficult time after after that baby was born, um, including a suicide attempt. Is that correct? I did. I um, so right after my my first child, um, I had my second child at uh, 21. And not really understanding postpartum depression, not uh, not having a solid support system, because my mom, when I was removed from my dad's home at eight, I no longer had contact with my mom or her side of the family. So I didn't have like a really positive support system or anyone to kind of help me on what to, what it is to be a mom. And my my children's father and I were going through a separation because as we know, unhealed trauma, these are some of the consequences. These are some of the things that happen. So either people stay in dysfunctional relationships or they run in and out of relationships. And so me and him were going through a separation. And I felt like my whole purpose in life was now to be a better mother than the mother I had. But as we were going through the separation, my boys actually wanted to be with their dad. And I felt like, well, if my purpose is to be a better mother, but I can't be a better mother because 
they don't want me. It re it like it was like a re-injuring thing that happened, right? Because it, it made me feel like well, my parents didn't really want me and past relationships didn't really want me. Does anybody really want me? There's really no point in me being on this planet. And so I had a major suicide attempt taking over 8,400 milligram Motrin, wanting to end it all. Mm. Mm. And at that moment, um, you know, my, my psychiatrist says, you know, there are lies at the bottom of suicide and it's that things will always be this way. Things will never change. And I will always feel this way. And, you know, you feel, you feel that so deeply, you know, when you hear one another's stories about that, but it is really true, isn't it? Unless you've been there and seen how dark that moment is, it's hard to understand how someone you know, who has, you know, two children and who has, you know, a, a life ahead of them can, can feel that way. But until you feel that kind of darkness, it's really hard to grasp. It really is because I was only 24 years old, but I felt, I, I love what your psychiatrist said that there's lies at the bottom of suicide. And I also believe that people that have thoughts of suicide or suicide attempts, it's not that they really want to die. They just want that pain and that darkness to end. And they can't really see the light. They can't see. And I know in my case, I couldn't. I, I could not see my life getting. It felt like there was this constant uphill battle, this constant struggle, this constant. And I was just tired. I was tired of the struggle. I was tired of the battle. And so I thought the best way for me to get the rest and the peace was to end it all. Mm. So how did you survive that? So I... My children's father, um, when he dropped them off and they wanted to be back with him, I, they were crying and screaming their head off. So I went and dropped them back, put them on his porch, um, knocked on the door and drove off. And he knew I was a lot of things, you know, in my, especially in my um, chaotic. And when I would have like these manic episodes, I was violent, I was angry, but I never like did anything to hurt my children. And so he knew that there must have been something wrong with me for me to put them in that danger. So he was calling, calling, calling. I wasn't answering the phone. And um, I think at one point I finally answered and I said, don't worry about it. You'll never have to worry about me again. Because mm. people that have these, they'll say things like that, right? They'll, they'll make these mentions. And so that was a red flag for him. And he sent the police to my house. And so when the police came, I was already very drowsy. The the pills were starting to take effect. And I told them I'm not going any, anywhere with them, but they had an ambulance and they had a police car. And so they were like, well, committing suicide is against the law. So either you're going to be arrested or you're going to go to the hospital. And so I went to the hospital and um, upon going into the ambulance, I passed out, um, had to have my stomach pumped, had to take charcoal. Like there's just, just a lot of, you know, graphic things that happen in that. But um, which I don't share with a lot of people, I remember waking up and, you know, like in the movies where you see like this foggy, dreamy state and the uh, doctor was over me and they said, you know, you're going to make it. This is going to be a rough road ahead of you because of the damage that you did to your body. But there's something that you need to know, um, a pregnancy test. They had taken a pregnancy test and I was actually pregnant. And so I had also harmed the child and I had to stay in the hospital and um, pretty much have a medical DNC to 
um, remove the baby because the baby did not survive my suicide attempt. Oh, I'm sorry. That is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. Um, so that seems like such a harsh, um, such a harsh uh, response, jail or hospital. Like, what are they going to do for you at the jail? That's going to help preserve your life, you know, but that feels a little like a scare tactic, but it worked. It worked. <laughs> so sure. did you, did you engage in any um, psychiatric treatment after that then? I did. So um, in most states, you know, when you attempt suicide, you have to, once you are um, stable medically, you have to go on to um, what's called a 5150 hold. And so you have to go for three days into a psychiatric unit. Um, I did that, but I was still not medically um, stable. So I went back to the hospital and then they um, advised me to go back. But like many things, it was impacted. So there was no room for me. So they trusted that I would do well on my own. And really, here's where my faith comes in again. I made the choice that I needed to start like intense therapy, and I needed to do this on my own. So I started um, actively engaging in my healing, because I believe that that's not what a lot of people do when they have these traumas, they don't actively engage. So I begin to actively engage in my trauma and get around positive support systems, but really taking my therapy and my healing um, to another level. Yeah, good, good, good. So now you are the mother of eight. Is that right? Yes, that is very true. Crazy, I know. (laughs) They range from age 10 to age 21? Three, 23 is the oldest. Wow, that's amazing. Well, in that process, you had a set of twins, right? I did. Which number were they? So the twins are um, four and five. Okay. Okay. So, um, but you lost, you lost a twin, right? I did. So um, 19 weeks, this is, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit off air or we were talking earlier about going up, moving to Iowa. So we decided for Iowa because we had all these kids in California is beautiful and amazing, but it's expensive. Let me tell you. Right. <laughs> we were thinking, how can we afford these children? Um, and so my my then husband had a sister that lived in Iowa. So we moved to Iowa. Um, I was about 17 weeks pregnant. And two weeks after moving there, I went into labor at 19 weeks. And I thank God that the twins were fraternal. Um, it was still very, very difficult thing. But at 20, 20 weeks, I um, gave birth to the first twin. Um, we named her Betty Lorraine. She lived for about two hours and then she passed in our arms. And then I literally had to stay in the hospital, like basically upside down to keep my cervix closed um, in order to keep the my second twin, um, Amaya. And so I stayed in the hospital until I was 30 weeks pregnant. And then I gave birth to her. They let me go home because I was begging them. I needed to be home with my other babies. And then two weeks later, I gave birth to her. Wow. Wow. So how do you, um, how do you go about grieving the loss of a child and at the same time celebrating the birth of a child? How, how does that work in your brain? Those things don't fit together for me. Right there. It's not congruent. And to be completely honest and transparent, um, I didn't. I did not grieve uh, my daughter until it took me eight years to grieve her. So I kind of just went about life as usual. 
thinking like, I I can't have this moment because I have these other children that I have to care for. And I do believe that there's a piece of religion, not faith, but a piece of religion that kind of perverts your emotions and makes you feel like, well, you need to be grateful. At least you have this, right? There's, you shouldn't be angry or upset about that. So I was going through that. There's this like cognitive dissonance that's happening. And I'm like, well, I can't be sad because at least I have this one. You know, people were even telling me that, but it took a moment. Yeah, it took a moment of me. um, Amaya was eight. And so Betty would have been eight as well. And I remember having this intense feeling of I've never like it, it was almost like she wasn't there anymore. Right. But I still felt her. I felt felt a piece of her. And so I remember having this moment of it's okay. It's okay for me to grieve. It's okay because I lost a child. She lived inside of me. My daughter lost her roommate, you know, and we should be able to grieve her. So I had that moment. It took me, uh, you know, a week or so to really grieve the loss of her. And then from there, we started to celebrate. We celebrate her birthday. We celebrate the time that she's alive because I believe a big part of healing is is in the celebration is celebrating, mm-hmm. you know, um, the triumph of a thing. So. Yeah. I think you're right though. I think that there are deceptions and lies of the enemy that exist within religion that say, um, you can't, you can't grieve. You should be happy. The joy of the Lord. Um, and you know, the peace that passes all understanding and all of those things are true. It's just that they don't negate the process of human emotion because we see all the way through the scripture, we see human emotion played out and we see grief and we see, um, sorrow and we see sadness by great by great heroes of faith who love God with their whole heart. And so I think it's I think it's really a travesty that um and a, and a misuse of scripture when we when we use those things as bullets to say, you know, be better, do better. You know, I yes. just I I just think that's really harmful. Yes, you know, this week I've been really studying like David. He's he's one of my favorites and um, I never understood, you know, in the scripture where they're like, they tore their clothes and they took the ashes. So I did like a deep study and that was a signal, a sign of, of grieving. And so mm-hmm. I was like, wow, all through, I mean, and David, if, you know, now with, you know, my advanced degrees and stuff, I'm like, gosh, that brother was like in some severe depression and anxiety. He was absolutely right. And, and if, if they had those labels, the scripture would clearly tell us, but if you now, now that I read the scriptures from like a healed version, you know, healed lenses, I'm able to see even Jesus, you know, they talk about when he, there is actually a phenomenon that happens when you have an intense amount of anxiety where you're, you can sweat blood, like where, where it talks about how he was so, um, you know, the scripture where he talks about, will this cup pass? And he was so like, overwhelmed yeah overwhelmed, you know and so those things um emotions human emotions are all throughout the scripture fear you know anxiety depression even suicide but you know a mm-hmm. lot of times we don't do not want to talk about those things but i feel like the fact that i'm able to make those connections and not to um like placate or make 
what I'm feeling like not to um, pacify, but to really give me strength and to really make me realize God gave me these emotions and I'm allowed right. to build all. Right. You know, we look at, we look at Job and all the travesty that he went through and, and all the grieving that he went through. And then all of his, all of his comforters, I'm using air quotes, all of his comforters that came along and some of the stupidity that they espoused. And you just really go, okay, so this isn't new. Like religion has done this for as long as, as long as (laughs) the earth has been alive, but, but God's, God's um, promises still stand true. And I think that's, that's really what we, what we stand on. So, so, um, and then you had a stroke at, when you were 32, tell me about yeah. that. Right. It's just, the story just keeps getting better. Right? It <laughs> so, does. It does. It's deep. <laughs> so I, um, was dealing with a lot, um, you know, the old folks used to say stress will kill you. And I never really understood that, but I was, you know, juggling, um, which is why I came to the conclusion that balance is a myth. You know, so many people say that they want to have this balanced life. There is no such thing. If you try to balance anything in your life, something will fall. And so in that process of me trying to balance stuff, I was neglecting myself. I was abandoning my own needs, my own self-care, you know, because I had gotten into this practice of like therapy and self-care and journaling and all this great stuff. But trying to balance life, um, I let go of me. And I feel like a lot of women can probably resonate with that, where we try to do other, everything for, every, uh, for everybody and we forget about ourselves. And so I'll never forget, um, it was six o'clock in the morning on August 12th. I, woke, I went to wake up Amaya and I fell into her closet door and the boys' room was right across the way. And I just remember hearing them scream and with a stroke, your brain is still active, but your body is not responding. So my brain, I, I saw them, I heard that I couldn't get up, I couldn't talk, I couldn't have, in, you know, there was, it, it was really scary. It was one of the scariest moments of my life, because I saw the fear in my children's face. Mm-hmm. And so I remember my oldest um, dialing 911. And in my mind, I felt like, if I could just wake up, like I felt like, like my brain wasn't woke. So I remember thinking like, if I get a cup of coffee, if I get in the shower, right, just keep doing all the things, right. just do all the things. And um, so I remember um, asking them for paper because I was talking, but they could not understand me because my language was the, the stroke really affected the part of my brain that produces language. And so I asked them for a paper and I wrote on the paper, put me in the shower, And then I said, and you guys need to still go to school. And I remember their face like, what in the heck is wrong with you, mom? But I was so used to the performance of things that I was even allowing that even in this moment of um, where I was really just not well, I still was to perform. And so when the ambulance came, they, I remember them saying she's having a stroke. And I was like, how, like, you think of strokes of elderly, I was only 32 right. years old. It's like, how this, this, this isn't making sense. And then in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, there's so many people that I need to help. And that, so I can't, this can't be my reality. And so I fought it. I thought that I was having the stroke until I laid in that hospital bed for two weeks. I'm completely paralyzed on one side of my body. Um, I still am able to talk and I would have to write notes to people. And I thought, it's time for me to surrender. 
it's time for me to mm. surrender trying to be God to people, trying to even be God to myself. And I surrendered. And I remember saying a prayer in my mind, Lord, if you get me out of this, if I'm, if, you know, I didn't care about my look. I, you know, because my, I had the droopy face. I had all those things. And I said, I don't care about any of that. I just want to be able to t- take care of my children. I want to be able to live this life that I know there's, there's no way, you know, I, I have to tell God, like, there's no way, there's no way I went through all this crap in my childhood for it to end like this. This can't mm. be it. Mm. This cannot yeah. be the end. So I surrender. I surrender to you. And I remember slowly but surely, I could feel like my toes started tingling. Slowly but surely, I was able to put, to put words together and make a sentence. Slowly but surely, I was able to stand. And within two weeks, I was being able to be released from the hospital. And it took lots of physical therapy, lots of, um, I had to go see my neurologist, um, take blood thinners and all types of stuff. But today, none of that affects me. People, when I tell people, they they look at me and they think, stroke, how, where? You're right, right. <laughs> I'm like speaking at colleges and speaking at major conferences where the damage affected my language. But I feel like that's what the, the enemy does. He tries right. to take the one thing that God gave you, that's your greatest weapon and your greatest hope for other people. Yeah. So the stroke didn't affect you long-term physically, but it did affect your purpose. It affected who, who you have become and what you, what you give to other people. And so tell me about that. What, what is all of this, you know, her and these organizations and different things that they do, what, what has become of, of you post stroke? Yeah. Oh man, I have chills, but I love that that you, you formed it that way. So um, after the stroke, I really got radical in my service to others because I believe that um, our service, I believe it's Muhammad Ali that said our service to others is how we pay for our rent here on earth. And so I began to really serve others. And so I started um, going to schools and I started at continuation schools with teen moms, right? Because we usually go back to where we were. And I went to teen moms and I started speaking to them every Tuesday which came the concept of Tuesday with Tamika because the girls would be excited. It's Tuesday with Tamika. And so every Tuesday I would go and then I started speaking on just like Facebook and Instagram. Every Tuesday I would give a word of inspiration. And all of that has evolved into my Becoming Fearlessly Her program. And her stands for Healed, Elevated, and Restored. And I believe that everything that I've been through, God has allowed me to turn my trials into treasures for me to help people heal their past traumas, you know, and I don't do the work. I just partner with God and, and you know, with the strategies that I've used um, throughout my journey, but we um, heal our trauma, the residue from past relationships, we elevate our mindset, and then we allow God to fully restore. Once we're able to be in a place, it's almost like a person that is in rehab. They have to heal physically, emotionally, mentally. And then once they do the healing, they can elevate. Once they're elevate, they can become restored, which restored is bring back to their former selves. So then we can Mm. have that green passage. We can have that green field. I just am a firm believer that we can have everything that God promised to us. So all of my businesses are built off of Joel 2 and 22, where it says God will restore 
everything that the canker worm, the palmer worm, the caterpillar tried to destroy. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so what has been um, helpful for you in the writing process? What has that done for you? Oh, writing is, is literally cathartic. It is, I'm able to, because sometimes um, with trauma, with all of these past experiences, my perception may be skewed. You know, the way I'm seeing things may not be really reality. And so once I write it down and I teach my clients this as well, write it down, putting stuff on paper on purpose helps you to realize, is, is this the truth? Because there's a big difference between truth and fact. It may be true today, right? It's true today that it's overcast right now, but that does not mean that our world is overcast. That's not a fact. So right. learning writing process has helped me determine truth and fact. Right. That's great. So what all have you, what all have you written? So I have um, six books that I've written. I have from crutches to stairs. It's 21 short stories of my life as a mother and just some of the things that I've been through. Some of these stories that we talked about are in those um, little short stories. And then I've written a 21 day gratitude journal. It's a devotional. Um, I've written, I've co-authored two books um, with, um, it's an anthology with several other women. I wrote a restored manual. It's six weeks. It's a manual to really help women walk through restoration. And then um, I'll, I wrote the Becoming Fearlessly Her playbook. So it's a, it's mm. a little ebook that helps women um, really elevate and, and uh, heal from those past things. That's amazing. And how do people get a hold of those materials or look them over or find you? Yeah, so I made it very simple and, it, and it's just stuck to the script. If you go to TuesdayWithTamika.com, you can find me. That's my website. And also on social media, it's just Tamika Thomas. I'm most active on Instagram, but Tamika Thomas on Facebook, Instagram, all over. Okay. Well, we will put that in our show notes. Tamika, it has been um, just a joy to talk to you. And I'm just, I just, uh, I don't know. I'm just struck by how much um, God has moved through your life and allowed you to um, allow you to give of your struggles and your trials in ways that are life giving to others. So I just I just thank you for investing in in my life this morning and by telling us about about your work. Thank you so much. And truly, truly, although it may sound cliche, God gets all the glory because I would not be anything without him. And I'm so grateful that he has chosen me to do this work. Absolutely. Well, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.